Right, I'm going to get started, although having said that, there are still lots of people coming across the car park. Um, but time is rapidly running on, and we should officially have started about 18 minutes ago, according to the programme that, that was designed. Um, let me just do a brief intro. I'm one of the directors of Mind and Soul. There's Rob Waller, who you've seen, who's a consultant psychiatrist. There's Will van der Hart, who's an Anglican minister. And there's myself. And I spent a lot of my life working in mental health, but I've also been involved in church work in a range of different things. And I vividly remember um, when we were planning today, uh, Rob said, and it's one seminar that uh, is going to be looking at the whole issue of demons and deliverance. And I've called it, or at least this is Rob's title, Demons, Do They, Don't They, and What If? And he then said, Jonathan, I've allocated it to you. And I remember this sort of look of glee on Rob Waller's face when I saw him, him, him say that and do that. Um, so that's sort of the background of uh, where I'm coming from. Actually, I'm one of the directors of Mind and Soul, and it's really wonderful to see you here. Um, and people still arrive. Do come in. There are lots of seats. Just come towards the sort of front and sides. Let's pray. Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, as we come to this seminar this afternoon, we truly want it to be dedicated to you. You are the Lord God Almighty. You are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the king of kings and lord of lords. And Lord, as we come into this place this afternoon, we declare you to be who you are. And we come in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, our saviour. Lord God, send your Holy Spirit to be in here with us this afternoon fill this place take control of all that happens in this room lead us guide us direct us lord god we ask this in jesus name amen in a gathering of this number i guarantee you there's going to be a real mixture of people um, we certainly had in the first session, and I guarantee it'll be exactly the same this afternoon. A mixture of beliefs and ideas, particularly when it comes to this subject. Well, it's not surprising because it's one of the most controversial subjects I can imagine having to speak on when it comes to the Christian world, but also when it comes to Christianity and mental health. I'm Jonathan Clark. I'm the manager of Premier Lifeline. Some of you have already said to me, ah, I recognise your voice. Yes, I work for Premier Christian Radio, have done for 11 years. I was the agony aunt or uncle on Premier for eight years with Lifeline Live. I'm also a director of Mind and Soul. My background straddles the divide in this issue. I'm a Christian who grew up in an incredibly conservative Bible-believing church, where although we were taught to believe the Bible passages to actually be real and that things actually occurred, and that when they talked about spiritual gifts and experiences, that they had really happened, but it was in the past tense. They had happened in the apostolic era, and that, that is where it finished. That's the sort of background I come from. Um, a background where, basically, you have lots of spiritual stuff then, but in the here and now, we were very rational. It was almost like academic, studious approach to your faith. Um, it's almost very much based on the whole thing of the Enlightenment and what had come after the Enlightenment. In a way, that's the sort of approach, I guess, I grew up with. Yes, we were taught to pray. But now God worked through doctors, medicine, and in mental health through psychiatry. So when a member of my extended family became ill, 
and had a breakdown in her sort of middle age. There were no qualms whatsoever in her being admitted to hospital under, for treatment under the Mental Health Act because that's what you did. God had given the society today all the wisdom, all the understanding in medicine to actually deal with all the problems. So from the church perspective, yes, if you're ill, you go to the doctor. If you're mentally ill, you go to the psychiatrist. And that was that. And what the Bible had taught was something for that era, not for today. That's what was happening in my church until I was about 10 or 11. At which point my parents decided to move churches. They moved to a church only about two miles down the road, which was incredibly different. It had undergone a charismatic renewal. To say charismatic is probably the understatement. It was raving charismatic. And it was full of spiritual gifts, full of all the different aspects of the charisma bit, and claims about healing, claims about all sorts of things. I say claims. Yes, at times there was healing, but also at times there was claims of healing when actually there, weren't, there wasn't healing. It couldn't be more different from the church I originally grew up in. After university, I actually ended up in a career in mental health. And I guess part of that is because of the experience of having been to psychiatric hospitals to see uh, my grandmother when I was young, having sort of known what it was like to have mental health issues within the family. It's also partly because, actually, I truly believe that my parents, particularly my father, was absolutely convinced that Christians should be willing to reach out to anyone and everyone, whoever they were, whatever problems they had, however strange they might be, whatever challenges they were. And in a sense, it was instilled in me and the rest of my family too, actually look at the individual for who they were, not how society saw them. Maybe it's not totally surprising that both my brother and myself ended up working in mental health. I've actually worked in a range of settings from the asylums, the old long-stay psychiatric hospitals, community mental health teams, day hospitals, day centres. I've worked in the statutory sector and the voluntary sector. I've also twice worked in mental health and community projects run by the Diocese of Norwich and Canterbury, two of the dioceses of the Anglican Church. On a parallel line, I've also been a minister of two different churches, one for six years and then one for seven years. And in my spare time, I've sort of undergone and worked in um, the healing ministry and deliverance ministry. And at times in my life, I've almost had three different hats on. One is professional mental health, working in a secular role, working in a church, in a ministry setting, which wouldn't necessarily welcome certain aspects of the healing and deliverance ministry, and then working alongside a separate independent Christian organisation which was actively involved in the Christian healing ministry and deliverance. So when I say a lot of my background straddles a lot of the debates that some of you might be coming with, I've actually had to think through and understand and make some sense of the whole thing. The one thing that my background taught me was to read and study. And this applied equally to academic research and also to the Bible. And in my Bible study, I read all the different passages about the work of Jesus and how he dealt with demons. And I was left with a clear understanding that this was meant to be in the Bible. It's not there by accident. It's actually meant to be in the Bible. And it's also meant to be there for us to read today. The question is how we understand it and what sense do we make of it today and its relevance for the church today. 
From my understanding of the Bible, we live in a created universe, which contains the physical world in which we live, breathe, are active. But there is also a spiritual world surrounding us, which we have the ability to relate to. We are made physical and spiritual beings ourselves, body, soul and spirit. God has designed us, yes, to work within and live within a physical world, a physical universe. But there is a spiritual aspect to us which relates to God and relates to the spiritual world. The spiritual world, first and foremost, includes God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And if you do not believe they exist, which perhaps, depending on why you're here at this conference today, that may be your, your position, then there is little hope that you'll ever consider the existence of demons being a reality. Because for my starting point, there has to be a recognition of there being something and someone greater and beyond this tangible and physical world. I believe wholeheartedly in God, in his son Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, and in the Holy Spirit who is sent to be with us. This is where what I will say now, and for the rest of this seminar, will depart away from mainstream secular psychiatry based on medicine and scientific research. Because if secular psychiatry is based on the assumption that there is nothing spiritual in this world around us, then actually, if there is no God, if there is no Jesus, the Holy Spirit, there is therefore only physical reasons for an illness and not anything else. Most people will accept there is good and evil in the world, but many people will explain them away as being purely the result of the choices made by individuals and communities and not the evidence of any outside entity beyond the physical world. If you talk to people, if you talk to people outside of the church, they will often see that there is something which is good and evil. But do we believe more than that? Actually, if you talk to a lot of people I've met in the church at times, they will talk about good, they'll talk about evil. But actually, how much more do they believe? Lots of people do not like even contemplating the term Satan or the devil nowadays. And if any of you actually saw a Sunday morning programme recently on which Rob Waller was the consultant psychiatrist being interviewed, you had a whole range of people there. And I think they were completely taken by surprise that the nominal psychiatrist who had been invited to come along actually wasn't coming from a secular perspective, but admitted that he believed in the devil as being real. As being real. And I think that threw people a bit, because they expected there to be an Anglican clergyman or Church of Scotland clergyman or whatever he was. They expected there to be this person who was against it all, and they expected to be this professional psychiatrist. They just happened to pick the consultant psychiatrist based in Edinburgh, who happens to be Rob Waller, a Christian and director of Mind and Soul. Many people who are, are religious um, actually explain the Bible's discussion of Satan and devil and demons as being the personification of evil rather than living beings. What they'd say would be that the spirit of evil comes across a person or community and that that spirit is a symbolic picture of the power of the evil the sin, the negative nature. So it's the spirit of evil, the essence of evil, rather than someone or something. I've never been of that opinion. I've always taken the Bible and its teaching to be absolutely literal when it talks about an adversary called Satan or the devil. And also taken it seriously when it talks about evil spirits and demons. It's just the same way that when I read the Bible and it talks about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the existence of angels, I take that literally. I just I read it and I believe it. The problem sometimes I have with people is that they read the Bible and believe what they want to believe, 
and actually then try to excuse what they don't. For me, if it says A, B, and C, and also D, E, and F, you either believe the whole lot or you don't. And that's the perspective I tend to come from. So I have no problem in understanding the concept of a spiritual world in which there are spiritual beings who may not be visible or tangible from our natural perspective, but who can impact us. In the first seminar, someone came up afterwards and said to me, can you ever see the spiritual beings, whether angels or demons? Because surely you can't see demons, can you? Well, actually, can you see angels? Does anyone ever see angels? Is there any record of anyone ever seeing an angel? Actually, let's think about it. If you don't believe you can see angels, who appeared to Mary? Who appeared to the shepherds? Etc. So, over the years I've been struck with a number of people who believe in the spiritual world and actually become ever fearful of the power of evil the devil and demons. I can think of some people who spend their lives trying to fight Satan, fight the demons, and actually it becomes a preoccupation. And they become ever fearful. They're, they're looking underneath every chair, behind every whatever, you know, behind every door, looking for evil because they are living in fear. I have a real problem with that because as I read the Bible, I am absolutely convinced that the power of evil is limited. Satan is not portrayed in the Bible as equal but opposite to God. I say this again. Satan is not portrayed in the Bible as equal but opposite to God. But instead he is portrayed as an ambitious, jealous, rebellious created being trying to undermine his creator. He never had the upper hand over God, and he never has had, and he never will have. But he deceived mankind into following him. Mankind was given authority over this earth. And then mankind, through Adam and Eve, submitted themselves to the authority of Satan. The devil conned, deceived mankind into submitting to him. Satan is limited. More than that, think about Jesus. The power of Satan over this earth has been conquered by the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus by taking our place on the cross to die for our sins, to be the perfect human being, to actually go and face death on our behalf. Satan has been challenged even for the one bit of authority he had. And Jesus now can be our way out of being under the authority of Satan. And there will be a time when Satan will be finally punished and exiled. He is not the equal but opposite to God. He is a created being. Satan is as a act compared to God. He is not an equal. He is an upstart who has tried to take over someone whose role was so much greater it could never have worked. And he's truly like the gnat or the fly who is annoying but is going to be squashed. My understanding of Satan's origin is that he was a created angel. And yes, he was someone special probably. If you look at scripture, he was one with authority along with Gabriel and Michael. But who was dissatisfied with serving God and wanted worship for himself. He caused a rebellion in the heavenly realm. And as I understand scripture, a third of the angels sided with him and fell with him. 
my understanding of the origins of demons and evil spirits is that they are the fallen angels that rebelled with Satan against God. Now, I know some people and someone I work quite closely with would disagree with me on that. And there might be a debate as to are demons and evil spirits the same thing or different things. Um, And you can get into all sorts of arguments about that. In scripture, at times, they're used interchangeably. So for me, I honestly believe they are the same. But underneath it all, I don't think it actually matters exactly how you understand what demons are. It's actually what they do and what you do to respond to them. Certainly, my understanding is that the Bible is quite clear about Satan being a fallen angel. And as an angel, I also believe he's limited in where he can be. Often, at times, I've heard churches speak about Satan as if he can be everywhere all of the time and he's all-powerful and all-controlling. No, my understanding of Satan is that he's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. And he cannot be so all-controlling and all-powerful that when people say, Satan made me do this, Satan told me, Satan, actually, I don't believe half the time it's Satan. I do believe that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that was Satan. But I don't believe Satan is that active or able to be in all places that he's blamed to be. However, I do believe that the angels that fell with him, the demons, actually are there to do his work. I also believe that a lot of the time, they just encourage us to do it on his behalf. Because with human beings, we are fickle, we are fallen human beings, and actually, underneath it all, we generally enjoy sinning. Even Christians enjoy sinning, um, but they shouldn't. Or, well, they shouldn't do it. The problem is a lot of sin is enjoyable. And Satan knows it. And actually what happens is that he gets his demons to do his work for him and then encourages us to get on with it. And far too often we do get on with it, working on behalf of him. The life of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, is a challenge to anyone with a rational, enlightened, scientific mind. Why? Because the Gospels talk about Jesus. Yes, they talk about Jesus being a wise teacher, a wonderful philosopher, giving all the wonderful things about how you should live. But throughout the passages in Scripture, it talks about healings, miracles and deliverance. It talks about Jesus not being natural, but also being supernatural, doing things which are impossible in this world according to the normal working of nature, of science. A miracle is not a miracle unless it is supernatural. It is God intervening in this world. Deliverance is not actually dealing with something which is physical. It's actually dealing with a supernatural problem. If you study the passages which relate to the ministry of Jesus, and you study all the different supernatural interventions he makes, it talks about healings, miracles and deliverance. Deliverance only occurs in a limited number of the passages. Not all healings related to deliverance. Not all miracles related to deliverance. It's a range of things being recorded. And deliverance is just one aspect. When Jesus healed the paralyzed, the blind, the woman with the flow of blood, those with leprosy, plus many more of the different recorded miracles and the people who are brought to Jesus and receive the healing, there's often no mention of there being any hint demon possession, demonization, or having demons, or whatever you want to describe it to be. You're looking at healings. You're looking at miracles. You're not looking at something 
created, caused by a demon. Where there are these generic lists of people being brought to Jesus, being demonized is just one of a range of conditions listed. For example, Matthew 4, verse 24. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. I believe that this, at the very start, undermines the case put forward by some Christians that all illness, whether physical or mental, is indicative of the presence of demons. And deliverance is always necessary. Sometimes in the church you will have people who are saying there are no such things as demons or there are no such things as demons in the church. And there are others who will say that all physical conditions, all mental conditions are demonic and everyone needs to be exorcised. I don't believe either fits in with what the Bible says. It is certainly not borne out by the Bible passages that I've read and understood. However, the Bible does indicate that there were some people who were deemed to be in need of deliverance from demons. Mark chapter 1, verses 33 and 34. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is very clear because it makes that distinction that there were many diseases and he also drove out demons. There are two different things being talked about here. Jesus healed the sick and also delivered people from their demons. So, which are the passages that relate directly to deliverance? What are they? What do they apply to? Who do they apply to? Now, um, I've actually got listed quite a lot in the notes. I know a few people haven't got notes. I will make sure that you have. If you give me your name and address, we will send them to you by post. <coughs> or alternatively, um, they hopefully will be downloadable from the Mind and Soul website. So either way, we'll make sure that anyone who hasn't got notes will have access to notes. <coughs> Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 33. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus... And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Matthew 12, verse 22. They brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Where there was a physical consequence of the demonic presence in the person's life, and the demon was cast out, the physical condition was cured at the same time. So in those two examples, you clearly have someone who had a physical condition which had some link to being demon-possessed or demonized, as in fact the Greek word really should be translated here. Someone who had a demon, and having that demon had some physical consequence on their ability to see, on their ability to speak. And when that demon was cast out... The physical condition was cured because whatever it was having the demon, uh, so how, it, how the demon affected them was dealt with. But having said that, if you think about it, in the list I've already read to you about the people who were healed without any mention of the demonic, there are very similar examples without any reference to deliverance. And for me, I would have to say to people, beware. You may have someone with one set of symptoms and you see them 
on one day and you pray for them and God says, there's a demon affecting this person. You need to do deliverance. And you do, and the person's healed. Because the demon was causing the condition. You may find someone else come to you the next day who hasn't got a demon but has similar symptoms. Just because the symptoms might be similar, it doesn't mean it's the same cause. One passage that causes great controversy is the one in Matthew 17, verses 14 to 18. And I know certain churches find real problems with um, how certain organisations have interpreted this one. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O unbelieving perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. The reason why this passage can be controversial is that it's often taken that the seizures represent epilepsy and for some the logical conclusion is that all epilepsy relates to demons and i know there are all sorts of issues with that but think about the range of passages i've read to you so far a little earlier on in matthew chapter 4 i read a passage where healings of people who had seizures were listed separately from deliverance from demons Therefore implying that at one point Jesus healed someone who had seizures because they needed healing. But in the passage I've just read you in Matthew 17, the seizures that that person had had a relationship with the demonic. In one there was a link, in the other there wasn't. So you cannot even assume that if there's a similar symptom, it has a similar root. Actually, look at the scripture. There's a passage, which I'm going to read now, which every time I look at it makes me think. It's very easy to assume that every time demons are talked about, there's something physically wrong with the person. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The man was causing a disruption when the evil spirit cried out in the presence of Jesus. But there was no indication of any form of illness. Think about that. Jesus is confronted by someone who recognises him because the demon in him recognises Jesus, speaks to Jesus, and Jesus tells the demon to come out, and the man is freed from the demon. What is happening there? Yes, the man caused a disruption in the synagogue on that particular day because the demon recognised Jesus. It doesn't actually say that this man was a problem to the synagogue. It doesn't say he was mentally ill. It doesn't say he was physically ill. It just says that when presented with the Son of God, the demon in him cried out. One thought could be, this man might have been going to the synagogue for years. He might even have been one of the elders of the synagogue. It was only when confronted with Jesus that the demon called out i've known situations where people who have been well in in quite significant roles within their church 
when presented with God working in power in that church, have exhibited the presence of a demon in their life and have responded by how they've called out, how they've moved, what they've said or done. Because the demons were feeling threatened and were fighting back. I've seriously experienced that in real life. And those people, at least one or two examples that come to my mind, were actually quite senior members of their church. They may have been going to church every week, every Sunday on a regular basis, and actually doing significant roles. But when confronted, the demons came up and spoke. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person had anything physically or mentally wrong with them, for whatever reason they had a demon present. So you don't necessarily have to be ill to have a demon, mentally or physically. But here today we're talking about mental illness. And the one passage that's always quoted as representing mental illness in the New Testament is found in Matthew 8, Mark 5 and Luke 8. And it relates to the story of Legion or the Gadarene demoniac. Over the years, I've had lots of people using this account as an illustration of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or some other form of severe mental illness. A number of years ago, I actually worked for the National Schizophrenia Fellowship, which is now called Rethink. And I've never accepted that this passage gives anything like the details of the symptoms that would enable the diagnosis of schizophrenia to be applied. Nor do I think it actually gives the symptoms which would actually give a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Neither ring true to me from my professional background. It really is quite strange that often we try desperately to say, um, how do I understand what's happening here? How do I explain it in our modern understanding? Yes, at a stretch, I can understand why also people might say, oh, Maybe he had borderline personality disorder, probably linking into the self-harming. Maybe he had psychopathic disorder or even dissociative identity disorder, which some of you may have no idea what it means, but a few might. But any of those might be proffered as being suggestions. But actually, why do we come up with these suggestions? What purpose are they? Well, I've come up with two possible rationales behind why we come up with these suggestions. The first is to explain away what is in the Bible. Now, I believe that what's there is the illustration of the power of God working through Jesus in dealing with the demonic, in dealing with the power that comes from the demonic. And it shows that Jesus is greater than any of the power of evil. But by trying to explain it, sometimes it's trying to offer that reinterpretation of the passage to illustrate that it's not really demons, it's a mental illness and it's this mental illness and that Jesus did not understand what he was tackling that he thought it was a demon, but it's really not a demon. It's a mental illness. And therefore, we should see these passages as talking about mental illness because Jesus just got it wrong. Now, if you think about my background and how that I am a Bible-believing Christian who takes the Bible literally, I'm sure you will understand why I have a problem with that response. Because somewhere along the line, you almost have to, or you do have to, have that assumption that Jesus didn't understand it. Well, if Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world, surely he would have known whether it was a demon or not. He wouldn't have got it wrong. It wasn't a mistake by Jesus. Jesus understood what he was dealing with and why. Another way to explain it as to why we start trying to uh, identify things is that I know some people have over the years tried to work out, ooh, 
which diagnosis does this apply to? So that we um, can work out who we can do deliverance on or not. If this was schizophrenia, therefore all schizophrenics can be put through deliverance and healed. Or if this was bipolar, it means that everyone with bipolar has this. Or if this was whatever else it may be. And so sometimes it does feel as if people are trying desperately to label, desperately to identify, so they can pigeonhole and actually say this criteria or that criteria. The trouble with that is that actually we really don't have the details we'd need to make a full diagnosis. And even if there was a diagnosis that could be made easily, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because in this circumstance, on that day, a person presented to Jesus with symptoms caused by a demon having been present in that person, it doesn't mean that everyone who has those symptoms necessarily has a demon. But actually, when you look at the passages which I'm about to read you, and you look at how distressed this man was, and you look at all the depth of anguish there is and his behaviour, it really doesn't fit any of the diagnosable mental illnesses that I've worked with. We're talking about someone in a very different situation. I'm not, not saying that to undermine the severity of mental illness. What I'm saying is that in this passage, it just does not fit the diagnosis I've ever worked with in my mental health career. So what does the passage actually say? It's in three places. I'll quickly read them to you. Matthew 8, verse 28. When he arrived at the other side in, in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Mark 5, 1 to 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Luke 8 verses 26 to 29. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. We are talking about someone who's quite disturbed, to say the least. Jesus meets two men who lived among the tombs, isolated from everyone else, so violent that no one could pass that way. The people around knew who they were, where they were, and kept away. Two of the gospel writers focus on the main character. The people around felt he needed to be chained up for the protection of himself and or others with a guard. But he had such incredible strength that it was impossible to restrain him or hold him down. He had broken free. He was naked homeless, solitary. He would cry out day and night and he would cut himself. A description of someone in great distress, a danger to himself, a danger to others, wild and tormented. Was he in mental distress? Undoubtedly so. For me, absolutely. There is a mental distress there but does this description reveal someone who has a clearly diagnosable mental disorder? For me, it's no. 
Or is it more symptomatic of the deep anguish, distress, and even derangement of thought and behaviour caused by the presence of the multitude of demons? Is he the sort of person to be admitted to the local mental health unit? In many ways, I'd argue no. Having said that, I can imagine situations where the police might pick him up on the streets, take him under 136, which is the section of the Mental Health Act, so that he can be put somewhere for the, his safety and the safety of others because of his behaviour in a public place. So actually, at times, he's the sort of person who would come to the notice of the mental health unit. But is he diagnosable as suffering from a mental health condition, an illness, a disorder? There would be a debate as to what to do with him. More likely, he's the sort of person that, over the years, I might have seen in a forensic unit, a special hospital like Broadmoor, the place where you put someone who is behaving in such an outrageous way and is quite a danger to the public, but actually, where do you put them? They're too dangerous for psychiatric units and perhaps they're too disturbed for prisons. Maybe somewhere like Broadmoor. Possibly you might see someone like this there. But there's a real debate with someone like him. Was he mad or bad? Was he treatable with a mental illness or just perhaps containable? Well, certainly in those days, no one could contain him. We now have powerful medication, but I've actually known powerful medication be quite um, unable to contain or control some people. This man in that era had all the constraints possible, chains, guards, and it all failed, and he ran wild. Because he had this unnatural power to be able to break the chains. Everyone knew of him and avoided him. But when he meets Jesus, to the surprise of everyone around him, he recognised who Jesus was. Jesus had come on a boat to this place, lands, gets out of the boat... And the person he speaks to knows exactly who Jesus is. Take note. Matthew 8, verses 29 to 34. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? What do you want with us, son of God? They recognise Jesus. That passage goes on to say, some distance from them. A large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to the demons, He said to them, Go! So they came out and went into the herd of pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. Reported all this and what happened. I think they were more concerned about the pigs. But what happened to the demon-possessed men? Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. In the notes, I've actually copied the other two passages, but I won't read them through. Um, the interaction between Jesus and the man is not actually what you would expect. In the end, he, as in Jesus, is not addressing the man, but commands the demons to come out, and they respond. The man falls at Jesus' feet. He shouts out and begs not to be tortured. And he speaks as if he were multiple and not just one. Some people might argue that this is multiple personality disorder. But Jesus enters into a discussion with those he saw as being demons and with what was coming across very much as voices coming from the person but not the person speaking, someone using that person's voice. I would say here that I have experienced quite clearly this happen. 
And I'm convinced it's not some form of multiple personality disorder. I have been in situations where a person who's been in front of me and we've been ministering to this person and they've suddenly started talking to me in, in a voice which was not their own, in a manner which was not their own, in a behavior which was not their own. And it was not some author or person part or however you might try to explain it. This was a demon speaking through that person. And I've seen it, I've heard it, and I can understand exactly what is happening here when Jesus is speaking to this man, but actually really speaking to the demons inside, challenging why they were there, and then telling them to come out. This man had been overwhelmed by a multitude of demons. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. The demons are speaking through him, and they have rational thoughts, and the demons argue the case for what happens next. They were not wanting to be just cast out into oblivion. They actually were arguing a case, Jesus, please do this. They were trying to almost negotiate. Jesus is talking to what he sees very much as being demons. The passage doesn't state why they were there. But actually there is an interesting association with the Roman army through the use of the name legion. Does that indicate something? Also what might be hinted at is that they request to go into the pigs. And the swine shouldn't have been in Israel because they're a forbidden animal. I know there's a debate as to whether or not the Gadarenes was or wasn't filled with Gentiles or Jews or a mixture, but there's quite something about pigs and pigs being unclean in Scripture. And it's quite interesting that they want to go into the pigs. The key in this passage is that the demons recognised Jesus. Jesus knew who they were. They submitted to his authority and he commanded them out. Yes, Jesus agreed to send them out into the pigs, who then ran down the cliff and drowned. Pigs shouldn't have been herded there, as they were forbidden for food. But the final consequence was the death of the herd and disgruntled local herdsmen, whose livelihood had just been witnessed running down the cliff into the water. I'm sure they were not best pleased. <clears throat> so what of the man? So what of the man? When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those people who'd seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This story is not about the pigs, nor the herdsmen, but the demonized men. So what of them? The passage clearly states that the locals were afraid at what they saw because these men had been utterly transformed. In particular, the main character in Mark and Luke was dressed and not naked. He was sitting at Jesus' feet and not wild. He was in his right mind and not disturbed. He was coherent and not ranting. He was restored 
sent home instead of being an outcast. He had met with Jesus and was totally transformed. Did Jesus really believe in demons or was it just the culture of the time? Jesus clearly taught about deliverance from demons and instructed the 12 and then the 72 when he sent them out to go and do likewise. He is recorded as having a powerful deliverance ministry himself and both faced the devil and spoke to and had authority over demons. If Jesus as the son of God came to teach the truth of God, then surely he would have taught in a different way to the way he did if demons didn't exist or were just cultural. Jesus came to teach the truth of God and therefore I believe that demons do exist and are real and are relevant today. So what about today? How does this apply in the 21st century and our science-based mental health services? I've worked in mental health for 27 years and have been involved in detaining people against their will for assessment and treatment. And I've had no qualms about recommending people to take their psychiatric medication or undergo therapy. Over the years, I've lost count how many people I've actually had to sign forms for for them to be admitted to hospital against their will. At times, I've signed forms so that they receive treatment compulsorily under the Mental Health Act. And I have no qualms about that. If a person has a clearly diagnosed mental disorder that needs treating, then I am convinced that we should all support this treatment, whether professionals, the community, family or the church. Yet I do not want to exclude the power of prayer. I've seen the impact of prayer ministry and Christian healing in the way that God has transformed lives and does transform lives. Nor do I deny that demons still exist. And in some cases, they need to be expelled. There is a need for deliverance ministry. And I have been actively involved in the deliverance ministry over the years. And I have no qualms that if someone has a demon, you get rid of the demon. My great concern is this, that we all need wisdom to know when to treat, when to pray, when to deliver. We also need to actually ensure that whatever we do, we do it with respect to the person, the individual, who they are and their situation. And it needs to be done by experienced and competent practitioners under supervision and where appropriate in consultation with other professionals, psychiatrists and support networks. Do I believe there's a role for the healing ministry in the church today? Yes. Do I believe there's a role for the deliverance ministry in the church today? Yes. Do I believe there's a role for the mental health services and psychiatry in the church today? Yes. The challenge that we all face is when does one apply or the other? Sometimes you'll have someone who needs healing ministry and see a psychiatrist. At other times... It will be one or the other. Is it something that's relevant to today? Yes. In your notes, I've actually put down a number of things. One, about Premier Lifeline, when we're open. But also I put down about another event we've got coming up. Today's really very short. It's a seminar, limited time. But actually we're planning a one-day introduction to the Deliverance Ministry on Saturday the 25th of September. It's in the notes, and if you're able to come and you're wanting to take this further, have a look and consider coming to that. Also, I've got a recommended book. If you really want to find out more about the the deliverance ministry, this is probably the best research tone on the subject by Peter Horobin, Healing Through Deliverance. It's available in the bookshop if you want to get a copy. It is actually worth reading because Peter is an academic who has gone to scripture and argues through what happens, why it happens, and what you should do in response. What I'd say in closing is this. If in your church you're facing challenges when it comes to the deliverance ministry 
I, yeah, that you're thinking, is this person mentally ill or is this person someone who is demonized? A, do not always assume demons. It's often going to be the case the person's mentally ill. Have they actually seen a psychiatrist? Do they actually need input from the mental health services? But if there's still that nagging bit at the back of your mind, I'd say to you, get support. Do not try to do something on your own. Reach out to organisations who specialise in the healing ministry and the deliverance ministry. Find out more. Do not do it in such a way where you're doing it and testing things out in the person. Relate to people who've already been through that and actually can help you. And there are organisations who are able to do that. Thank you for listening. It's been wonderful to see you here. I would say to you, I know some of you didn't get the notes. If you leave me your name and address, we'll send them to you. Um, the Lord bless you. Let's close in prayer as we go from here today. Lord, we truly want you to be the centre of our lives. And Lord, may we never be fearful of the evil one or his team. For Lord, we are your children, called by you, sent out by you. Strengthen us, equip us. And Lord, give us your wisdom so that when we meet people, you will show us whether they are someone that we need to encourage to go to the mental health services, whether they need prayer ministry, or whether they need deliverance and be set free. Lord, guide us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.